0: Hello and welcome to the Wheel of Time Rewind Podcast. I am your host, Dylan Stoll, and I'm joined as always by my friend, Michael Wifford. Heyo! So, we just finished watching episode 4 here, The Dragon Reborn. We're going to get into it, we're going to talk about it. This is probably going to be a little bit of a long one, so we apologize in advance for that. Um, But before we get into that, we're going to go through some formalities here. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you could send us an email at wheeloftimerewind at gmail.com. Or if you want to talk to us on social media, tag us or anything, DM us, have a question for the show, you can send it to us on Instagram and Twitter. Slide into our DMs. Right into our DMs, yeah. At WOT Rewind. And we'll be sure to answer them on there as well as we'll read them out here on the show so everyone else can hear as well. Speaking of that, we got our first five-star review, our first review ever. So I want to say thank you to Claire213892746291, <laughs>
1: who says, <laughs> the number.
0: great show for Wheel of Time, great podcast for everyone who loves Wheel of Time. I've read the books twice, and I'm excited to watch the Amazon show. Us as well, Claire. So thank you. Claire. with that said, we have a question as well provided by
1: my friend Mike here. Go for it. Yes. Yeah, so my partner, we were watching episode four together. Uh, really liked that episode. And we'll get more into that. But she had a question on the Wheel of Time as we were watching. She was like, wait a second. What is the wheel? Where are they? Where is the wheel? What happens if someone finds it or it gets broken? And so then I realized, oh, she thinks the wheel is an object. Like some magical item. And I could definitely see where she would get that interpretation. And so I just wanted to quickly just talk about how for the Wheel of Time, it isn't a magical item. It isn't like Excalibur, you know, a sword in the stone, but it's a concept. It's, uh, Dylan, you said something so beautiful earlier. It's...
0: Yeah, I said it was the fabric of the universe. It's basically like, you know, the mystical thing that makes the universe and time itself go round. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so the next thing we're going to jump into here is actually going to be a couple questions from the AMA that Rafi Judkins did on Reddit a couple days ago. Rafi is the showrunner for Wheel of Time here, and a couple of things I wanted to get out here real quick from that. There's about six major takeaways that I had from this. The first question was asked, are we going to get any book swears in the show And the answer to that was blood and ashes. Give us some time. It's coming, and just wait until you meet Uno. So that tells me, you know, Uno's going to be here. (laughs) We're going to get a lot of book swears. Uno, for those of you who might not know, was introduced in book two of the series. And he's somebody who has some very colorful language to say it (laughs) politely. But it's all Wheel of Time swears, like Blood and Bloody Ashes, and all kinds of great stuff like that so excited about that uh the next part um rafi was asked what scene from the books he's looking forward to the to the most to putting it on the camera to shooting for the show here and he said do my wells which Mm, that alone oh my gosh i'm so excited for that i just hope the series lives long enough to get to that scene because it's gonna be good Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is probably the most thoughtful question that uh, that was asked for the anime there, and it asked about the implications of the changes to the lore of Wheel of Time with a woman or a man being able to be the Dragon Reborn, and why I thought this was such a good question is because the way it was asked, and then more importantly, the way Rafi answered it. So Rafi said. The change we made was just not the fact that a woman could be the dragon. The core change we made was that people are not 100% convinced that these 3,000-year-old prophecies are 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. I feel it feels a little bit more true to the world. And you see the characters questioning the prophecies of the dragon and the details of it much more in the show than in the books. Although there were some scenes in the books that show this as well. We've just expanded on that. It seems quite trusting for Aes Sedai, who trusts no one, and especially Moraine, who trusts less than no one, to believe with 100% certainty anything that was written thousands of years ago. So I personally thought that was a great answer and really showed like how there's that unreliable narrator trope that we're going to be seeing here. And we need to keep that in mind as well with anything that we see on screen That's told to us and isn't explicitly shown. The next question I I was asked was why they chose to skip Tam's fever dreams. And why this was a good question is because again, Rafi's answer, his answer was, did we? So that has me wondering if we might get some flashbacks later on in the season Uh. seeing a little something that may have happened that wasn't explicitly shown so again coming back to what i said with that unreliable narrator there maybe something happened we didn't necessarily see on screen we'll see if it comes
1: back around yeah because we never saw um we never saw rand and his dad coming down we just saw them all of a sudden they were there In In Emmons Field, yeah. In the Two Rivers. And then the last part here,
0: there's two more questions. Uh, The first one was about Loyal and bringing him to the screen here. Because, to be completely honest, we've gotten some shots of what appears to be Loyal. And it has me a little worried about how it looks. But, uh, what Rafi had to say about Loyal is that the actor who plays Loyal... Um, Hammond I don't know his last name off the top of my head here is incredible and I've heard nothing but great things said about this actor so I'm excited to see his portrayal and kind of see if it makes up for the funky looks but what Rafi said was that with Loyal being O gear, they didn't want to have to rely on visual effects to portray him on the screen because that would get so expensive and they could not include Loyal everywhere they wanted to. So instead, they relied on practical effects so that they could have Loyal in the series as a series regular and be much more involved as he is in the books. So that makes a lot of sense. That's yeah. Fine. Then the last bit here I want to mention is just addressing the controversial scene of Perrin killing his wife, where Rothie says that, firstly, in a longer version of the script, a uh, parent was going to be the apprentice to the town blacksmith, who he then accidentally killed during the Trolloc attack. It was important to me that he have an iconic moment of violence in the first episode that would underpin his long-term to- journey with violence and whether he'd choose the axe or the hammer, so I made that blacksmith his mom. But as we had to trim a bunch of page length down in the scripts, it became a simpler story to tell it as his wife, and also felt natural as if these characters were in their early 20s in a small mountain village that one of them would likely be married. There's a scene in the books where Perrin talks about if he'd stayed in the two rivers, he might have married Layla, Dar- Layla Dern. And voila, mm. Layla was born. My only sadness is we couldn't have seen more of her. Helena Westerman, who played her, was amazing. So this just kind of goes back to like what Brandon Sanderson was saying about how He was kind of advocating for that scene to be done a little bit differently and have it be a different person other than his wife that Perrin killed. And I personally feel like if they made it his mother, it would have been just as terrible. Um, And I wouldn't have necessarily been a fan of that either. So
1: Hmm.
0: we got what we got, and we're kind of just having to navigate around that and see what comes of it in the future. Like I said, I just hope that the way that that they do it later on is they explain why she was so cold to him and that we might get a little bit more explanation behind that there. With all of that being said, Mike, do you have any comments on any of that Reddit stuff that
1: I just talked about there? The mention of the flashbacks, I think that's really key because we could definitely see some flashbacks for Perrin and his wife's relationship. And I think that would help us kind of come to terms with that a bit more. And it may shed some light on whether or not she was a dark friend.
0: And that actually leads pretty perfectly into the next thing I just want to mention really quickly before we move into our breakdown of the Dragon Reborn, episode four here. And that is just talking again about how Mike and I are avid book fans of the Wheel of Time. What we're going to be doing here on this podcast is we will be breaking down the episodes we see from our lens of what we saw on screen, but also using our knowledge of the books to inform what we talk about try to make sense of what we're seeing on screen here we will do our best to try and not spoil anything that has not happened yet on the screen but we will be talking about how what we're seeing on screen relates to what we had read on books as on the books as well so just as a little heads up there if you have not read the series or anything like that and you were curious about checking them out yourself, we still highly encourage you to do so, but absolutely they're fantastic. And that's what made us fall in love with the series to begin with. But we will be using book knowledge to talk about what we're seeing on screen. Again, trying not to be too crazy on the spoiler front there though. (laughs) Now that we are well and truly into this episode, Let's actually give the people what they came for <laughs> and talk about episode 4, The Dragon Reborn. So, I'm just going to come right out and say this off the top here. Best episode yet. Favorite episode yet. Loved this episode so much. And big shout out to Alvaro Morte, who played gain. Absolutely phenomenal mm-hmm. job. Such a good job. Oh, yeah. So... We come in here, start off the episode with Loghain and his army taking on Gaelden as they say in the in the show here. And I was like struggling with the pronunciation because I'm like, it's Gildon,
1: It's Gildan, right? I'm glad you said but, it because yeah, I was going to say Gildan. Yeah,
0: but they pronounce it as Gaelden on the show. So going in here, uh, my initial reaction was that Loghain's introduction is awesome. I love how the corruption mm. of the one power for the male Chandler is portrayed. I absolutely loved how mm. madness was portrayed using Loghain here. And I want to talk about that more in just a second here. But I also want to point out that Loghain was doing no fancy hand movements to use the power. So I think this is going to be coming back to what we saw in the books where certain power, u- one power users were trained, the Aes Sedai, were trained to use the One Power doing these movements. And since that's how they learned how to use the One Power, they cannot use the One Power without those movements to accompany them. Whereas Mm -hmm. other Chandlers who may not be Aes Sedai and were never trained in those hand movement things can use the One Power by just, you know, looking at you and using the One Power and not necessarily going about and doing all these fancy hand signals. But I thought that was a good way to kind of show that. But again, just loved all of that stuff about Loghain.
1: Uh, What are your thoughts on that, Mike? So I definitely agree with everything you said there. Uh, (laughs) I thought the actor did such a phenomenal job. And Loghain as a character is just so likable and so believable. You can see why the king there joined his forces absolutely he has a noble cause at least you know according to him the way the madness was depicted was fabulous i liked the two voices talking to him i liked how uh side siding there you know when he would channel there was a hint of it being white and pure Mm -hmm. and then that black streak just jetted through it i like the art like how the Madness was arguing and trying to convince him to like kill the king, and how it made it sound like his parents and his sister betrayed him, and maybe he killed them. He had left you com- left that completely up in the air for you, and he just chose not to listen to him. And he made it just made him so likable, and the music really punched that into the music during this part was just it's something I actually noticed when watching. I had one little thing. <laughs> About the scene, though, that I was wondering... Go for it, yeah. When we kind of jet into the city, and we're, like, when the camera's going in, we see that it's war-torn. Parts of the city are in flame. It. I was like, well, how is... how? Do they have siege engines? Um, I mean, you'd see some guys fighting and stuff, and people running around, but it just felt very empty, too.
0: It did, because, like, when Loghain's army attacks later in the episode... They just seemed like a rabble of men. It didn't seem like there was Mm -hmm. anything too fancy going on there. Who knows? Like, maybe they left, like, their siege engines or catapults back at Galen, but I don't know. Um, A few other things I want to mention about that, and I want your opinion on this, Mike, too, is I agree 100% what you said about Loghain. I love that they showed that Loghain is not a bad guy. That Loghain, Mm -hmm. even though he's a male Chandler and everything this show has been showing us so far, has been male Chandler equals bad. Loghain was Mm. not an evil person. He he genuinely believes he was the Dragon Reborn. And then he spares the king's life, even though the king tried to kill him. And he was just such a moving speech at the beginning there talking about how the last dragon broke the world, but I plan to bind it and just won his enemy over to his side. Uh, A couple quick things here before we move on from this scene as well um, is I took advantage of the Amazon X-Ray feature. Not sure if you did for this. There is a name associated with the female voice talking to Loghain. And the name is Alusha Salid. And I have no idea who the heck that is supposed to be, (laughs) because as far as I remember from the books, Mm. and again, in the book series for Wheel of Time, it is like 56,000 pages long in total. So (laughs) there's a high chance that I do not remember every single name ever mentioned in the Wheel of Time. But Alucia Salid does not ring any bells to me. And from Mm -hmm. what Loghain says later in the episode, it sounds like she may be a former dragon. Because he says when he channels... Yeah, quote-unquote, dragon. Because when he channels, he's like, I hear the voices of the previous dragons coming to me. But something I found interesting as well is that there is no name associated with the male voice of the corruption figures talking to Loghain. Just the female voice. So... I just want to kind of keep that in the background and see if anything is built onto that later. Maybe
1: I'm digging too much into this, but that's why we do it. That'll be interesting. Also, did you notice the male part had like a crown or something on his head? I did. Yeah, his his head was not spherical. So it kind of makes me wonder like
0: if it was maybe a peek at Luz Theron because Luz Theron was Omerlin back in the day. And as we have seen from promotional images of Swan Sanche, she wears a crown of sorts. Anyway, so we go from this scene with Loghain to the scene of the Aes Sedai camp, where we have the Reds watching Nynaeve like a hawk, and Moraine finally gets healed. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. we have that going on. Uh, She's talking about Loghain's strength with karini there and how logaine's strength and the cost of the energy to that she's expending to shield him is just affecting her and taking this toll on her that you just like see on her on leandrin when she releases her shield on Loghain later on you just see the effort it's taking to contain Loghain. meanwhile Loghain is sitting there not a beat of sweat on his brow, and that's really ruffling Leandrin's feathers there. And I really liked how Leandrin wants to gentle him on the spot, but Karini put her in her place and is like, no, you know we can't be doing that. Like, he's going to get to the Amarlin seat in the White Tower, and he'll have a trial there. We're going to follow this by the book. But... Moraine is back in action, wanting to see what Logane has and quickly inserts herself into the shielding core there. So, the couple breakdowns I had from this scene here is I got the, like the sense, you know, that the other Sida, other Aes Sedai might not like Moraine that much and like she's kind of portrayed as a little bit of an outsider with a book series there. Um mm-hmm. but that also it seems like when steppen is training with lan he's kind of like digging at lan as well trying to get more information from him too so it seems like everybody wants to know what moraine's been up to what are your thoughts on this opening scene where we see
1: moraine finally get back out there thought there was a ton of easter eggs for fans of the book within this scene nynaeve wearing the green and yellow thought was that that was a great outfit (laughs) um i like that she stood off to the side she didn't really want to associate herself at all and i liked how karini which is also a throwback to the books yes um to an aes Sedai in the book series she meets a similar fate there yeah i thought it was really interesting how they talked about power levels yes having to shield Loghain in pairs and how only four of them were strong enough to do so it was a hint at, you know, the power levels of the Aes Sedai there, which I think is plays a big big role later on. And I like how the Reds admitting to, well, not coming out and admitting to doing wrong, but Leandrin's basically admitting to doing wrong because saying how they want to, like you said, gentle Logan on the spot. And then Karini um, says, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And then we already know that they've already done it. Right, and that's talked about later on in the episode as well, that mm-hmm. there's
0: rumors the Reds have been gentling men across the countryside, but Leandrin would never dare cross the Ammerlin seat, except the Ammerlin's <laughs> not here. So
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: we'll talk about that in a bit, but... Yeah. I thought it was a great scene, yeah.
1: I did too. I loved how the shielding looked. Me too. Like when that layer, it was like a layer that just between the person and the source.
0: So the next scene that this jumps to is we get back with Perrin and Egwene with the Tinkers, the Tuathawan. And Perrin, I have written down, Perrin is paranoid because he doesn't like the Tinkers. He doesn't trust them. He thinks there's something wrong about them that he can't quite put his finger on. And I think it comes down to what we hear a little bit later on about the way of the leaf and how Mm -hmm. like that just is kind of clashing with what we've seen with Perrin and a violent nature being like kind of expressed in the first episode and him trying to come to terms with that, seeing somebody kind of like as like as different from that violent nature as you possibly could be kind of rubbed him the wrong way a little bit maybe. But I also have written down, that I really like the actor that they have playing Aram. I thought he was, I thought oh, he was yeah. great, and like he totally knows that they're lying about being from Whitebridge. That he's like, yeah, mm-hmm. sure, you're definitely from a Whitebridge merchant caravan. I believe you. Wink, wink.
1: <laughs> he brings good humor. He does.
0: He just has a good energy that he brings onto the screen as well. Like I said, I, I do enjoy his actor as well. Mm-hmm. So the next little bit, we get like a quick glimpse of. Matt and Tom and Rand riding through the woods and Matt's horse is having a difficult time riding in a straight line. Not saying his horse has been drinking, but you know, (laughs) it's one of those things where what's causing the uneasiness of the horse with Matt here. And this is going to be something that we'll touch on a little bit later in this episode. Um, That's referenced later on by
1: Tom as well. But it's. I think there's a. It's a little interesting scene because you have Matt going from kind of the pessimistic one to Rand again is pessimistic in this episode about Tom. Yeah. Which I thought was, which I thought was funny. I also like the Matt's mentioning of five, not four. Who could be the other person besides, you know, the boys in the game? Instant cut to so low gain. <laughs> yeah. Instant cuts to low gain which I want to go back and talk just about uh, one thing here, because I had some questions about this. Yeah, go for it. In the scene before with the Aes Sedai, we had um, uh, Karini and her warder talk about how Leandrin was trying to sway the Aes Sedai, and he felt that more people were going over to her side of thinking about just um, gentling Loghain. And I was like, wait, who is Leandrin trying to persuade there's eight Aes Sedai that we see outside of Moraine, four red and four green. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, the four red are probably all on her side, you know but yeah. what about, I mean, why would the green go over to her side?
0: That's a very good
1: question. Yeah. I know what they're trying to explain, like how they're manipulating, like even within just the Aes Sedai themselves, like vying for power, manipulation, that's all there. And we get more of this in the coming scenes, but for me, it was just a touch confusing. I was like, Who are you trying to convince? I was hoping there would have been a more represent like more representation there of blue and yellow and white and gray and even brown. That would make more sense. But yeah, they kept it to red and
0: green. And I feel like they did that because of what they do a little bit later on. It's also I feel like like you said, no green, no self-respecting green is going to be in favor of gentling a man on the spot without taking him to the tower first so we'll see how it goes though Uh, in the end we all know how it turned out so (laughs) um i just have written down here there's the reiteration of how women cannot see men's weaves when they channel but they never say in the show that the opposite is not true they never say that a man cannot see a woman's weaves However, you know, we as book readers know that is also the case, despite some questionable things happening later on, too. Um, But I have written down here that, like, Alana seems like she's a bunch of fun. that Where she's like, oh no, I could never be blue. One warder would never do. (laughs) And I'm just like, that's hilarious because of what we get later on. Um, But we also get an explanation in this episode about... The Red Aja, the Green Aja, and even a condensed and derogatory reference of the Blue Aja, too. Where, like, the Blue Aja are referred to as, like, a bunch of little spies who think they're more important than they are from Leandrin. Whereas, you know, here we see, like, the Green is the Battle Aja. You know, like, never thought she'd have (laughs) to fight in the last battle, but here we go. Um, And then the Reds are responsible for basically policing the power making sure that no one is misusing the one power whether that be male channelers who they view all men who can channel as misusing the power as we saw leandran call it a filthy thing in the beginning of the season of the season here but also as Leandrin's quick to point out and a little bit later other other eyes to die, they feel like overstep as well um, we do also get Moraine talking about how there was a how there have been male and female false dragons for pow, who've done it for power or for personal gain. So I thought that was a little interesting as well, and I wonder if we'll get to see some examples of other false dragons that have come before. we gain, and I really like Alana's question here as well about what would happen if. They find the dragon reborn, but the reds have already gentled him before the last battle. And I was like, oh man, that would not be good. Because I feel like that would lead to, I win again, lose Theron. (laughs) So go ahead, Mike, you can talk about Alana (laughs) and this scene here.
1: (laughs) I felt she was so personable. I liked the banter back and forth with Moraine. It gives you that, it lets you know that Alana did know Moraine back when they were novices and sort of builds this little relationship as well as um, the digging for information even from each other and I just felt like Alana was really genuine at her so her actress did a fantastic job Yeah, no, I really liked her as well I thought she did a good job and
0: I'm looking forward to seeing more of Alana throughout the season so we'll see how much of her we actually get but then we get a scene that I never thought I would actually see and that's Leandrin being nice to Nynaeve. I was like, what's <laughs> going on here? So, in the books, um Nynaeve is kind of called a classic. Yeah, Nynaeve. it's called a wilder by a lot of us and I. It's just kind of like a term for people that learn to channel without the what the White Tower guiding them. And Leandrin holds all wilders in contempt, but especially Nynaeve because of how powerful Nynaeve is. And we see an example of Nynaeve's power at the end of this episode. But, so to see uh, Leandrin being nice to Nynaeve and being like, oh, any woman is welcome by our fire. I'm like, oh my gosh, Leandrin. Like, never thought I'd see that. But they seem to bond over not liking Moraine. And you even see Leandrin smile when... Nynaeve asks her about Moraine, being like, okay, I can turn her against her already.
1: What did you think of this scene, Mike? I like how it ended, where Nynaeve basically, once Lan comes over and Lanjan's like, okay, peace. Yeah. <laughs> Nynaeve was like, that la- <laughs> That woman's a snake. Right. I was like, yes. Yeah, seeing see right her. through her. Uh, yeah, that was great. Yeah, that was pretty much my only takeaway from that scene. You touched on everything else. So the next scene is a
0: very quick one where we cut to Matt and Rand and Tom and we see them being like, okay, so let's sleep in this random person's barn here. We have to wait till after dark though because we don't want them to find out. And then they get ambushed by this dude. And you just see Matt getting more and more jumpy, ready to commit violence. Like you see his hand go back to the dagger. You see Tom trying to kind of swagger and lie his way out of it. And then I have written down, like, Rand is, like, the diffuser, the voice of reason in this part, where yeah. he's like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Wait, we were lying to you. Here's the truth. Have mercy on us. <laughs> and
1: Took the words right out of yeah, that
0: it Yeah, I thought it was a really good example of Rand just, like, identifying the situation and just being the person who does step up. And just, like, I thought it was a, a nice little scene there, and, like, we see this in the books a lot as well where like Matt and uh, Rand will kind of like sleep in barns while they're traveling and they'll like offer to help out with manual labor in exchange for sleeping at the barn and everything here. We jump right back into the Aes Sedai camp here and we get like our first little spat in this episode of Lan and Nynaeve where Lan's like countering Leandra's offer of going to her fire. He's like, you're welcome at our fire too, as long as you don't push anyone into it. <laughs> and just... Yeah, like the Yeah, are... I, I love the little, like, little tongue-in-cheek going on there. And I thought that was really cool. And there's other scenes in this episode with Nynaeve and land that are just so good, I, that I really like, and mm-hmm. looking forward to talking about those. So we get into the Tinkers and Perrin and Egwene again and a more thorough explanation of the way of the leaf which is you know the non-violent kind of religion kind of just lifestyle that the Tuathuan follow where they just kind of the leaf falls wherever the wind will blow it like it does not try to resist the wind when it goes after it or anything like that and just like they kind of look at it like what will happen will happen we're not going to like soil ourselves by being violent and I thought you know it was a good explanation the way they explained it in the show here and I thought that was really well done and again just want to mention this and I'll probably mention this in every episode but just the beautiful scenery that we have with like the sunset with the Tuathuan and everything there I thought that was again just a a nice explanation to kind of say what the Tuathawan are all about with the Way of the Leaf and then just fading out with good scenery shots.
1: It was beautiful. I had one issue with that explanation okay. for the Way of the Leaf and I was uh, wondering what you thought. I wish they had said that the violence does more damage to the user. They kind of said it in like a roundabout way, but I wish they'd come out and said when you like they do in the books, like the. The, that violence does more damage, like, psychologically to the person who does it than to, like, the item.
0: Yeah, I mean, they they do a good job about that in the books. But again, like, for a TV show adaptation that we're seeing here, I thought they could have done it a little bit better, like you said. But I thought it was okay. I thought it was a good explanation for, like, everybody to get on board with it. Um, the one th- line from this scene that I do think is funny is, like, how... She kind of, uh, how Isla is like, oh, well, when you, since you've picked up your axe, has your life been better or worse? <laughs> and you just like, that hits home for Perrin and Perrin is just like, oh, you got me. <laughs> and like, you can tell, like, is Perrin interested in the way of the leaf now that it's been described to him? Is he like thinking about giving up violence? Because like, as you see later on. He's in his head a lot in this episode. Like, he doesn't say too much, but you can tell he has lots running through his head when you do see him. Then we cut back to Matt, Rand, and Tom. And Matt and Rand are mucking out the stables. Meanwhile, Tom's just like, A Gleeman does not get sweaty before a performance. I'm going to sit here and puff on my pipe. Work it, boys. And you see Matt, like, throwing up and getting sick. And when you see him vomit, like, if you actually watch the scene here, you see, like, a dark mass moving around where he had vomited out onto the ground. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, Matt is carrying Mashadar within his body in this adaptation of the show here. And so Mashadar, if you remember, is, like, the manifestation of the evil of Shatter Logoth. So, like, where, when Matt took the dagger from Shatter Logoth, he took a piece of the evil of that city with him. And it's starting to grow. And that's where it's, like, coming up from inside of Matt. And, like, you see it later on when he's treated almost like a puppet. But the corruption that of Matt is having Tom worry about him because as we see here, we get the emotional story for Tom about like why he's helping Matt and Rand here, about how his nephew Owen, and uh, how his nephew Owen is going and ends up becoming a male power user and how he was gentled. When the Aes Sedai found out. But Tom was gone. And couldn't be there to help his nephew. So he feels really guilty about it. Because after he, after he got gentled. He cut his own throat with a knife. And caused Tom to feel a lot of guilt. About not being there to protect him from being gentled. Which in turn resulted in his death. So I thought it was a really good moment to explain Tom's motivation.
1: I really like that scene, especially at the end when Tom, <laughs> when Rand was like, what do you know? Or why, are you, or why are you so dangerous? And Tom said, nothing's more dangerous than a man who knows the past. And you have to f- think that's so true because these people don't live in a time where they have cell phones or in a place where they have cell phones or even like access to books and history. And so these gleemen are so important because they have that information and that knowledge. So I I thought that line was very impactful. I also liked, uh, the little Easter egg for fans with the doll that was handed to Matt from the little girl.
0: Yeah. So I actually have a little bit more here about that. So, I wanted to talk about this uh, right now, actually. So, yeah, you see the little girl coming out and talking with Matt, giving him the bread. And it just really reminded me of, like, how Matt was so good with his sisters back in Emmonsfield. And so I got, like, that Mm. flashback. And you know he got that flashback, too, because of his talking with the girl here. But he gets a little doll, like you said, Mike. And the doll is Birgitta who is one of, like, the famous heroes of, in the Wheel of Time who is attached to the Horn of Alyr, which, again, we'll try and get into, like, a magical horn that summons famous heroes of the past. Um, and mm-hmm. so Brigitta is, like, a famous archer who, like, never missed her shot and everything like that. And there was so much going on in that scene as far as Easter eggs where the little girl was like, Brigitte protects me while she's sleep, while I'm sleeping, and Brigitte's always wanted to see the world, and I thought it was really nice little foreshadowing bits there and just little Easter eggs there. Um, the other part I want to mention real quick, Mike, is, again, I took advantage of Amazon's X-ray technology here, and I looked at mm-hmm. who the girl, little girl was called on X-ray, the, the, oh, no. she's named Helga Grinwell, oh, but, gosh. but if you look at the subtitle, because I'm watching this all with subtitles on now, and I <laughs> highly encourage you to do this as well. If you watch it with subtitles, the name of the little girl is Els. So like Els Grinwell, like the, <sighs> like the girl from the books, who Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, so she won't be running off to try to join the Aes Sedai in this adaptation. Alas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not happening.
0: No, I thought that was just like a nice little, uh, little shout out to book readers again there. But I thought it was interesting yeah. how in the subtitle she was named one thing, but in the X-Ray she was named another. But I think it might just probably be an error of some kind, but interesting for sure. But yeah, like you said, that last line Tom leaves us with, where he's like, we call ourselves Gleeman because a silly name makes us less frightening. Nothing is more dangerous than a man who knows the past. I was like, preach, that's a such a good like line to just leave it there and just mm-hmm. leave it hanging. But then we get back to the Aes Sedai camp, where the warders <laughs> are surprisingly fun. Yeah, this scene is great. <laughs> But, like, Stepan gives us a brief definition of the Aes Sedai, where he's like, Oh, Aes Sedai means servant of all in the old tongue, which we touched on that a little bit with our World of Robert Jordan episode, where I talked about how this mm-hmm. was talked about there as well. Um, but, um, <laughs> and need's like, Well, if they're the servants of all, what does that make you? And Land's like, Proud. And then Alana's two warders are like tired, mostly tired. <laughs> <laughs> and then Alana walks by, gives them the eye, and they're like, "Yeah, we're we're tired. We're we're definitely going to sleep." Wink, wink, <laughs> and so they get off and run with Alana. Threepole and I is like they they're not all three of them. No. Meanwhile, Stefan's just laughing at her. But, uh, I gotta tell you, man, the very next scene had me really worried because Alana's getting freaky with both of her warders there. And then when Lan's like, you know what? I'm tired too. And he walks off to Moraine's tent. I'm just like, oh my God, please do not have Moraine and Lan get together. And I was like, don't have that happen. And I was so worried they were actually going to do it, especially when Moraine's like reaching over, grabbing Lan's hand. And I'm just like, no, no. And he's like, I shouldn't have drank. You get emotional when I drink. And I'm like, don't do it. But thankfully, they did not.
1: I don't think we're going to see them do that. I don't. And I don't I think either. They're doing a really good job because it's leaving the impression to Nynaeve and a little bit to the often audience at least. But I think more to Nynaeve that there is some kind of relationship there deeper than just water and um said eye, to And so it'll make it more impactful later on. Agreed. Like, so do you want to just like mention
0: what, how they explain that water's bond really quick as well? They in the, in the show, yeah, in the
1: show. or in the book, the show. Well, on the show, they don't really explain it too much. I mean, there's little hints of it throughout. Like, when Lan feels something... Oh, no, man, when, I was... Or uh, Maureen feels something, the other person will feel it. Or, I was like, more so
0: talking about how Steppen explained it. How, like, it's more than a husband and wife. It's more than a mom and a child. It's more... Like, it's just... It's more. Like, the bond that a warder in her eyes eye has is so close that it's beyond any other type of traditional relationship that exists. That was more so what I was talking
1: about. I think that's, that's a fine explanation for it. I don't really think we have to dig too much into that. But I will say it was interesting because when Lan comes in to
0: talk with Moraine, he's talking about the Dragon Reborn with her as an equal, it seems like. He's like as invested in this search as she is. Hmm. And so he's like... Is Loghain as strong as Egwene? He's ten years too old to be the Dragon. He can't be the Dragon. And I just thought it was very interesting because that kind of gives you an insight into Moraine's mind, where at this point in the show she might—I think she thinks that Egwene is the Dragon Reborn.
1: Mm, maybe hopes.
0: I think hope is a better better way to do it. Yeah, good way to put it. But then we see Aram dancing with Egwene back with Tuathuan, and he's trying to get her to have fun and dance with him. And meanwhile, she's just like looking over, trying to watch Perrin, trying to feel bad for or feeling bad for him, and trying to get him probably to come and join in and not be so sullen. But you get some really good scenes here. Like uh, the first mm-hmm. scene I'm just going to talk about is just finishing off Aram's scene with Egwene. Where he knows that she still carries a flame for someone. He's like, she's staring off into the sun or into the sky, the stars, and he's just like, So, who is he? Is he dead? Do I got a shot with you? <laughs> and Egwene's uh, just like, No, I'd know if he was dead, <laughs> basically. Um, just like, st- she's still carrying a torch for Rand, despite everything that we've seen so far in this season. And I think that is interesting. And I'm really going to be interested to see, like, where that kind of goes in the show. But then we get a scene that I really like, and that is Isla talking about her daughter. So what were your thoughts on that scene, Mike?
1: I thought it was such a great explanation of the hardship of the Way of the Leaf. Mm Mm-hmm. And because you see the the celebration the zest for life when they're dancing and then you hear her story of her daughter and why she does it, her motivation and I think it's such a beautiful way to show that even though their life is so bright and vibrant and that's all you're seeing right now, there is still dark and they have to have the strength and the courage to move on from that and so I think for Perrin, that's kind of also going to be impactful because even, you know, even though his reaction isn't necessarily that way, and he does question her mm-hmm. in a very, like, very strongly and, and brings and gets her to see some good points, I think, as well. But it's definitely going to be a story that can stick with him as he struggles with his acts of violence and his choices between the hammer and the axe.
0: Yeah, and like, I just love the quote from Isla where she's like, What greater revenge against violence than peace? What greater, re- what greater revenge against death than life? And I was just like, that was fantastic. I love love the quotables that we're getting from this episode so far with both Isla and Tom here. But... <laughs> Don't say that to a trollic. though. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, getting here... To the last part with Aram and Egwene again, kind of jumping back to that sequence there. The way he described mm-hmm. like leaving the wagons when they turned twenty really reminded me of like the Amish and Rumspringa. Rumspringa. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, you know, that's kind of like a nice little addition to the Tuathuan lore here. Just kind of makes sense with them like. It makes not- a lot of sense. Yeah, it makes sense with not wanting to hold people hostage, kind of. But it also really makes me wonder, like. How a certain scene that will happen later on in book four um will be received. Going into the next scene we see here with Matt, Rand, and Tom, I really want to talk about Rand's dream. So, what were your takeaways from Rand's dream there? Where like you see, first of all, you see it's like some like grayed out world with like Perrin looking a little bit bloody like smashing on something with a hammer um it looked like it was a person but i don't know if that was supposed to be his wife or or what was going yeah, on i thought that
1: might have been his wife just because the ring like the ring showing there
0: yeah i went into the x-ray section to see if it credited uh, the actress that played parent's wife for this scene and it did not so i think it was supposed to be his wife though because that makes so much more sense then we see, like, Matt walking around with his hand all bloody, outstretched, just kind of acting all weird and everything, and mm-hmm. Egwene just screaming for Rand, and then, boom! Surprise, surprise. Balzaman. Yeah, we get a balls-on sighting, just Mr. Flame Eyes himself.
1: More in focus. Yeah. Really cool. He was really cool. Yes. I like the dreams... I, I like that this was a dream, and I liked the effect, like you said, the grayed out world. I thought that was really cool. And I'm I'm hoping that when we do get introduced to the dream world, it it is kind of like that, that sort of fuzzed out, because that is how it's described in the book, the fuzzed out world. Yeah, I think it's a good chance it is. I like how it showed, you know, like you said, Rand hammering on the body. I assumed it was his his dead wife, and I assume that's what he's like dealing with right now, yeah. and that's what he's focused on. Matt's in this weird state where he's not even quite sure where he is in, in, in that exact moment. He's not moment, quite himself, too, yeah. Yeah, and then you have Egwene who's, like, worried about Rand, and Rand's worried about her, and Balsamon's like, you want her? Oh, too bad, she's already mine. Yes, yeah. But then we get
0: the next scene here where Rand mm. and Tom are, like, running after Matt, and they find him standing amongst a bunch of bodies here of the Grinwells and they're like oh my god what just happened here and this really has you as a viewer questioning wait did Matt kill this entire family here what is going on Mm -hmm. and then Matt like a puppet on a string like lifts his arm at this weird angle and like points the dagger up top being like I see you. I know you're there. Such a good line. And then the Merdral appears. And so a couple things I want to talk about before we talk about the Merdral and Tom fighting here is I want to talk about how you and I discussed this, but it does not look like Matt has any blood on him. So it kind of we're kind of leaning towards the being the Merdral that killed the Grinwells and not being not being Matt. But in the moment, there was that question where it was like, oh, no, like, what What are they making Matt do? <laughs> what, what just yeah. happened? And so then you see the merge all, and I kind of breathe a little sigh of relief. But at the same time, I'm like, still a little questioning of, of who exactly did what there. Um, but also, Mike and I were mentioning how in the books, and they mentioned this in the show as well, the Merdral and the Trollocs do not like Shadar Logoth. So, with Matt having the dagger there from Shadar Logoth, we were kind of talking about how the the Fade, the Merdral, was kind of like keeping his distance from the dagger itself because Mashdar and Trollocs and Merdral and the Dark One don't really <laughs> don't get, get along, along, along very well. But again, you see. Matt with like Moshadar kind of like Moshadar vomit on his mouth or whatever it is just kind of like possessing him and like moving him around and everything but then we get to finally see a fade in action and this is exactly where I thought we would see it I was going to bring it up last episode but I didn't really want to where like I said like I have an idea where we're going to see the first fade fight scene happen and it was going to be mm-hmm. versus Tom and you see right out the gate that a merge all is nothing to mess with because it's catching tom's wow. knives in midair and like matt or not matt um tom is doing all he can do to hold this thing back
1: so what were your thoughts on this scene mike the fight scene was awesome i liked how quick tom was with his knives it's showing his prowess yep. and then you have the merge all just striking and in the book it's uh described as striking like a snake mm-hmm. so lightning quick and you see that
0: yeah no I liked it a lot I thought that it was really cool the only complaint I have about this and Mike and I again had talked about this before we started hitting and record here and it's the fact that we only get to see Tom for such a little amount of time we only see him in a blink and then it's he's gone type of situation where he was introduced like 10 to 15 minutes into the last episode and now he's poof gone and i we feel like this scene would have been way more impactful if he was with the group from the beginning like he is yeah. in the books i mean they did try to make him a little bit more like relatable maybe with the owen scene, owen scene where he talks about that and his nephew there but it still would have been so much better if tom would have just been with the group from the beginning so the last part here is we are going to be jumping to the Aes Sedai camp again where we have join trying to tempt Karini into allowing her to gentle Loghain prematurely where she's like, well, if Loghain breaks free, then we can gentle him on the spot. And I want to come back to this later. Um, but then we get a scene flashing over to Lan and Nynaeve where they share that intimate moment of Lan praying the seven prayers for the seven towers poor of Malkir. Yeah, port one out for the homies. <laughs> and then Nynaeve says, like, her saying in the old tongue, and I think this scene right here is where Lan officially wins Nynaeve over. And, like, this is where, like, she starts to actually have feelings for him because like you see her mm-hmm. smiling after he explains what that what that old tongue saying means and how like she's starting to kind of put down her guard against him like not being so like mm-hmm. rigid and snappy to all of his questions and i feel like this is where we see that relationship really start to come in on her end there um Nynaeve is doing her best Matt impression is what I wrote down where she's like what the old tongue I don't know anything about that I think I heard it once (laughs) and I thought that was funny um but before that scene can get any more endearing we get Loghain's army attacking and Loghain breaking free so Mm. I just want to kind of talk about this part here with you do you feel like he was storing up his power waiting for the moment to try to press the shield there and that's why like he wasn't like trying anything earlier on or
1: what are your thoughts on Loghain breaking free it seemed like he was waiting for a distraction yeah and so he tried pressing it when it was maureen and alana while they were slightly distracted so even though he had his eyes closed he was just feeling for like moments of weakness
0: yeah and i thought i found it very interesting how earlier in the episode leandrin mentions that they have his ears plugged with uh with uh air but it really seems like with his little smirks that he's been having throughout this that he's been hearing everything that's been going on um so getting to the actual battle here that we see with the aes Sedai and Loghain's army my very first thought was are these Aes Sedai not as skilled as Moraine because if you remember from episode one you see Moraine coming in with the lightning hurling the fireballs whereas in this episode you see a lot of like exploding earth and stuff like that so what are your thoughts about this whole battle scene in general?
1: Yeah, that's a good point you bring up comparing this battle scene to the one in the two rivers. I think there could be a couple explanations for that. One, the one before with moraine had a lot of special effects with the fireballs and the lightning. Whereas the exploding earth is, I think, a lot more feasible because it's not CGI anything. It's literally it's just put effects, something yeah. in the ground and Yeah, make it <laughs> they're more practical effects, yes. So that could be a reason why. Also too, like you brought up um You know, we do know that most of those Aes Sedai with them outside of Alana are weaker than Moraine. So maybe they can't. Or maybe they're not as proficient. So those are some things there. I think overall the scene's really cool. Shows the importance of the warders protecting the Aes Sedai's backs. Definitely. I thought this scene did a very good job of saying
0: exactly why Aes Sedai need a warder. Mm -hmm. And also why Aes Sedai travel in pairs. Because you see the red sister gets shot with some arrows and the green Aes Sedai go over and heal her while that's happening there. So like like you said, I think the different power levels might have been on display and I think that was done probably purposefully and I think budgetary reasons as well is why it wasn't as flashy necessarily. But you see so Moraine cool. coming in and confronting Loghain. And she's mm-hmm. like, Tell me why I should believe you're the Dragon Reborn. And Loghain's response is, I hear voices in my head. (laughs) And she's like, You're crazy. I'm putting you in the ground. So I like how his argument, again, for, like, why he's the Dragon Reborn was, like, to to emphasize his madness. And I love how Moraine's like, What I want is for you to realize that those voices, that's madness. And it's creeping into you already. And you're going to be a candle next to the burning sun that is the real Dragon Reborn. And I was I was like, okay, so Moraine and Loghain are about to throw down here. Chandler versus Chandler. I was really
1: hoping to see Me it. Me
0: too. But then Karini, like, blasts Loghain back. They all link up. And they start trying to shield him again. And then... I had a little bit of a qualm with this next scene here, but the more I watched it and the more I thought about it, the less of a d- big deal that I thought it was. Because what this scene is, is when they're trying, when all three of them, Leandre, and Carini, and Moraine,
1: mm-hmm. are
0: trying to shield Loghain, Loghain fires those like shards of power at them to try to kill them. And Karini, like, shoots her shield out to protect Moraine and Leandrin and basically sacrifices herself. And I had a bit of a problem with that because I was like, is she seeing this right now? Like, how'd she know to block? And the more I watched it and the more I thought about it, I felt like she could feel her shield break. And she just had the feel Then she knew Loghain was going to lash out at them she didn't know with what or anything. So she th- just threw the shields up and that's when you know she took one to the chest there. And so Damn. that was kind of my like struggle with this scene here at first because I'm I'm really wanting the difference in Sidian and Sidar to like be clear and evident in the series here because of how important that is in the books. But as viewers, we do need to be able to see both. So I do like that. Yeah. Even though we can't channel, we can still see the waves. Um, and as soon as Karini goes down, it flashes the step in her warder, And she you can tell, like, he just wants blood. And his bloodlust foolishly almost kills everybody. <laughs> because he comes in, jumping in, trying to kill Loghain with his axes... While they're shielding him again. And it's just like, why are you doing this, man? Like, we shouldn't have you trying to put an axe into a male Chandler's hands. Because he can do bad things with it. Well, head. Well, into his head. But, like, we see what happens. Like, Loghain grabs the axe with the one power underneath the shield. And then uses the power to... Fling pieces of the axe everywhere, like attacking everybody and severely injuring people. And before we get into the scene, I just want to talk about this part here where Moraine and Leandrin are shielding Loghain. And Moraine's like, careful Leandrin, don't burn yourself out. And this is the first reference we've had of that using too much of the one power can hurt you. And so I really liked that this was a reference to that. But also, what a change for Leandrin. Like, I have it in here, is Leandrin being likable? Like, she's willing to burn herself out to get revenge for Karini against Loghain? Like, this is not the selfish and shrewd woman that we have from the books. So I kind of like this change for Leandrin a little bit.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: But then when Loghain flings the pieces of the axe everywhere, he made one mistake, and that was hitting Lan. Because I feel like if he did not cut Lan's throat with the explosion of the axe there, that Nynaeve would not have been able to channel and save everybody. But he did. He cut Loghain's throat with it, or he cut Lan's throat with it, and Nynaeve is like, Super Saiyan! <laughs> and goes <laughs> out and heals everybody. Like, has a mass heal effect spell, basically. And this part here I have right now is Nynaeve Unleashed. But, the again, going back to the seeing of the weaves here. And I've seen this discussed so many places. I'm, but I still struggle with it. I'm like, Loghain is seeing what's happening.
1: But, what are your thoughts on this scene, Mike? So I did think it was really interesting that Loghain could see the impact there. There was a couple other things in that scene that I had some issues with. One, they were I guess they were trying to shield Loghain when he got those pieces of the axe and flung it out. And it almost looked to me like he was shielded. And if he was, then it should have cut him off from the source. So that part I was a little uh, skeptical of. Just like before you said, when I initially watched the battle the first time, when Karini threw that shield up in front of um, Moraine and Leandrin, I was like, so she knew it was coming, like she saw it, but it makes sense that it could just be like a react, like she knew something was probably coming to get them since they were trying to shield him, and her shield had broken. But the ending there with Nynaeve healing everyone thought was cool and i really like that it showed again the power difference yeah between like nine and even the other aes Sedai and for logaine to be able to see that i think they're just trying to show like that's just how powerful she is and to also connect back to you'll be but a candle to the sun that is the dragon
0: yeah so the other thing i want to mention is like what i've seen online and like one of the writers from the show has responded about to this criticism of uh Loghain seeing Nynaeve's weaves on Twitter. And what they said is that Loghain did not see Nynaeve's weaves. What he saw was the effect of those weaves. Like he saw, Uh. like with Nynaeve being unfamiliar with the One Power, he saw the light that was created from this weave that Nynaeve formed. And just like the way that Nynaeve is, like, doing this is all by instinct right now because she has no eyes-to-die training. So what the writer said is that Loghain was seeing the bright light, so he was shielding his eyes. You weren't wrong there, but the light was from the healing taking place. It wasn't Mm -hmm. the weave itself. And so he didn't see the weaves. He saw the effect, which I thought was much more... Reasonable because, like, everybody saw the fireballs Moraine was hurling in episode one. You're, like, you didn't need to be a female Chandler to see those. But,
1: mm-hmm.
0: like, again, it just that something about that last scene there, I thought it was amazing. I love this scene, especially because I haven't gotten to my favorite part of it yet. But, like, I really still had something about this rummy the wrong way just with those two parts with Karini and then Loghain and just the seeing of or not seeing of what should not be able to be seen
1: yeah it's hard to it's hard to tell and i think a lot of times we're gonna feel like they can see them if they react in any kind of in any way shape or form yeah but i'm sure they're gonna offset it once if we ever have like more male channelers or you know seeing the weaves and they're not seeing it as it's happening so i i do hope we get some of that too Agreed. So, my favorite part, my favorite scene in this last part here
0: is where Leandrin gets her wish that she's like, well, if Loghain breaks free, we can gentle him. And guess what? Loghain broke free, so they're gentling him.
1: (laughs) So... Almost like it was... Almost like it was planned. Because that's why I wanted to circle back. Mm. I was like... I thought it was kind of funny that he could break out when two sisters were shielding him. And
0: one of them being Leandrin. Hmm. So, that kind of has me a little curious there as to if she purposefully dropped her shield and that's where Loghain's like, what? Is only one? Bust out. So, like, I was wondering if maybe Leandrin might be playing some games here and risking it. But then, like, mm-hmm. her reaction to Karini's death where she's, like, trying to burn herself out almost, like, or willing to burn herself out to get revenge on Loghain. Had me kind of doing a little hemming and hawing. But logain getting gentled what an amazing scene like you see the tears coming down the actor's face and down alvaro morte's face and i'm just like that was amazing and you could just see it like being ripped out of his chest there and it just looks so really cool. stinking good and afterwards Logan's just on the ground weeping because he knows yeah. he can no longer touch the one power i did think it was a
1: little weird that her cheeks were glowing
0: well that was the burning of herself out like the handling so much power uh, that it was starting to that's like what you took that as well that's what it was because like when moraine was talking about the hey careful don't yeah. burn yourself out you see that's when like her cheeks were glowing and because i feel like leandrin was handling so much power from all these different eyes to eye, like that's that's what i took it as was how much mm-hmm. she was holding that makes sense. <laughs> but yeah, so we made it through the entire episode there.
1: <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> definitely my favorite episode as well. It
0: was definitely my favorite, and I thought it was
1: so, so good, and I was, like, so much better than the first three. Want to do, do a quick theory for the next episode and then get on out? Yeah, let's do it, man. Let's do it. We're pushing a little long, but it's okay. <laughs> I know. We're doing it. Yeah. All right, so
0: <laughs> what is the title of our next episode? Blood Calls Blood. Blood Calls Blood, episode five of the series of The Wheel of Time. Okay, what are your predictions for this one?
1: So I think we're going to have somebody attacking the Tuathawan. I think you've had too much peace with Egwene and Perrin for right now. Um, Either that or they just decide to separate. I'm not quite sure, but I definitely think something's going to happen with them next episode. I also think you're going to have Matt and Rand have... (laughs) some conversation and matt may come out to rant about the dagger and they may talk about that and some of the things that matt's dealing with right now i also think that they are going to make it to or just at least maybe end the next episode making it to white bridge and i do think that is where all parties are going to meet because it just seems like too good of a place okay so i agree with you a hundred percent
0: about the tuathuan getting attacked um, I have a sneaking suspicion about who it's going to be, but I'm not going to say it. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: but also I do agree with you that Matt is definitely going to show Rand the dagger. They're going to have to have some real conversations here. And I actually am going to disagree with you about Whitebridge because I don't think yeah. we're going to get Whitebridge. I oh, think okay. what's going you to happen gonna... is going to go to Tarballin.
1: Mm. And so do you meet think they're there. just going to fit in a field or kind of meet?
0: I think they're all going to meet in Tar-Ballon. Um I think that um, Rand and Matt will get there first. And I think that in Tarvalen is where we're going to meet Loyal. And Interesting. Because Tarvalen is an Ogier-built city, but they also, more importantly to Loyal, have kept their their grove. So they still have the Ogier grove in Tarvalen. Or as they're saying in the show, Tar valan <laughs> So, oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a little idea. annoying to me. But I am, uh, I am still. That's my prediction for where they're going to end up. Um, I also think that now that Loghain is gentled, now that his army has been disbanded by Alana and her warders, and other, I said I too. That that party is going to move much faster. Um, but yeah, that's, True. that's my prediction for, I think we'll end in Tarvalon for Matt and interesting. For Matt and Rand. Well, that
1: would make a lot of sense with the next episode after that being called the flame of Tarvalon. Huh? I hadn't really thought of that as a possibility, but you saying it, that makes unfortunately too much sense.
0: Well, I'm, and I'm I thinking a lot of people
1: are not going to be happy with that. Probably. I'm
0: thinking that Egwene and told Aram that her and Perrin were from Whitebridge on the
1: Tarvalon.
0: And yeah, yeah, but they're headed towards Tarvalon as well. I'm going to keep calling it Tarvalon. I'm not calling it Tarvalon. Yeah, I know. <laughs>
1: Tarvalon. Yeah, you, you saying that that makes too much sense. I guess you're right. I mean, I, I don't I know if I'm right. We'll we'll find out on Friday. Well, I think <laughs> I think that, I think you're right though that it won't be Whitebridge because they've been making too much mention to Whitebridge. Yeah. And as like just a place that they've been or they're from, and you're right, they're not heading in that direction necessarily. So
0: Yeah, I mean Amazon has an interactive map if you go to it on your phone or if you go to it
1: on I have to download it to my phone apparently. Yes,
0: it's prime video is the app, and you can kind of see on the interactive map where different things are, and that's helping inform my speculation that's going to be Tarvalin.
1: Okay. Oh. We did find out the uh, name for the last episode as well. Ooh, what is that? The Eye of the World. Ah, uh, I, I figured it was going to be that. I, I
0: did. Um, so that has me excited. Yeah, me too. All right, though. So we have gone a little longer than usual, but we want to give you guys everything we can. Um, so, again, feel free to reach out to us with any of your theories, any of your thoughts. Mike, keep those memes coming. And we'll be posting them at least once a week when we launch our new episodes. Um, But until then, we'll see you all at the next turning of the wheel. Goodbye. Bye.